I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Mario Capecchi. Dr. Capecchi is a professor of genetics at the University of Utah, where he's been running a lab for many decades now. He is a recipient of the Nobel Prize, which he won in 2007 for his contributions to creating technology that allows us to make knockout animals, to knock out particular genes by deleting segments of DNA, thereby allowing us to understand what those genes are actually doing. He has had an illustrious career spanning uh, many decades. He has worked in areas ranging from developmental biology to cancer biology, and most recently, neurobiology. And so we talked a little bit about some of his current work looking at the role of microglia, immune cells in the brain, and what role they play in things like anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. We talked about some of his work that led to the Nobel Prize, how he developed the technology to make knockout mice, to understand how to delete certain segments of DNA in animals. And we talked about his entire career and his entire life. We talked about about, you know how he got into molecular biology. We talked about his early life, uh, which is a remarkable, remarkable story. He was an orphan for a number of years, living on the streets of Italy during World War II, separated from his mother. He eventually immigrated to New York in the United States. He learned English and assimilated and got an education, eventually getting a PhD in biophysics under James Watson at Harvard University and, you know, going on to have, you know, the illustrious career that I already mentioned. So, you know, we talked about his entire life, really, which is an amazing, amazing life story. We talked about how, you know, the the experiences he had in childhood and his early years impacted who he became and the type of scientist he is. We talked about, you know, why he has switched fields so many times and the value that he sees in that and how he thinks about his science, how he approaches it. He's 85 years old, but still running a lab, going into the lab every day, mentoring students, doing experiments himself. And, and you know, he's still he's still sharp. And, you know, he talked about uh, his diet. He talked about his exercise routine. He's apparently still exercising strenuously for about four hours per day, uh, everything from rowing to lifting weights. And so we just, you know, we just talked about his entire approach to his life and his science. And he provided a lot of interesting, I think, life lessons and a lot of insights, especially for aspiring scientists in terms of you know what they should focus on and, and how, how they should think about uh, going about their science. So if you're interested in neurobiology and, and things like OCD and anxiety, we talked about the science that he's working on today. But if you're interested in you know the scientific process and just hearing an, an amazing story about a, a remarkable individual, this was a really interesting episode. I had a lot of fun talking to Mario and uh, note about his work for, you know, for many many years, and it was a real privilege to get to sit down and and speak with him. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please like, share, and subscribe. Don't forget to check out the links in the episode description to learn how you can support the podcast further, and check out mindandmatter.substack.com for long-form science writing, all my podcast content, and the latest updates. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can 
mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Mario Capecchi. Mario Capecchi, I'm a professor at the University of Utah, uh, and I've been here forever. Uh, and uh, I mainly do research and some teaching. Uh, our research is... Uh, one of the properties of my research is that every 10 years I change subjects <laughs> completely. Uh, and that's a real transformation in the sense it's not only the information content, but also social context. For example, we go to meetings and now you need entirely new people because he's not working on cancer, which was what we were just previously working on. And now we're neurobiologists. And so we talking uh, to neuroscientists. Uh, and these are, I enjoy that process, and I've done it uh, you know, literally every 10 years or so of my whole career. Uh, and I, I think, in a sense, it's important because I'm naive. I don't know the questions I shouldn't be asking. Mm. And I go into a crowd, and then, uh, and first of all, you always have to start at the bottom, and then work your way up. <laughs> uh, so it's a... It's a rejuvenating process, I think, because it's a, you know, your mind loves to be challenged. Uh, and as long as you challenge it, it's active. And if you don't challenge it, then it goes to sleep. Hmm. And so is, is that is that like a conscious choice to, to switch fields after yes. a number of years? Okay, so it's, yep. it's not. Okay. And I look ahead and, and, you know, and, and think about where I want to go next. Uh, and then I often teach a course in it, so I really get to have to get into the literature and uh, you know be able to talk to students. Uh, and then and then and from then on for ten years I'll stick with it. And right now we're in year three of neuroscience. Wow! So you're doing so you're you're most well known for your work in molecular biology and genetics, and I definitely want to yeah. ask you about some of that. But you're in neurobiology uh, now. What what's like? What kind of questions are you asking? What what's exciting uh, that you're working on? We're primarily working on two uh, neuropsychiatric disorders, anxiety and OCD. And they often occur together. Uh, <clears throat> that is, in uh, in our mice, it's 100%. In humans, it's about 80%. Uh, so it's, uh, <clears throat> and the question is, why are, to the, why are working together? What is, uh, and we've, you know, by, we also apply new technologies. I mean, we're, I'm very technology-centered, uh, having developed technology and then having to utilize. And, you know, most people are not comfortable changing, but in science, actually, 
you have to change. It's absolutely demanding. Uh, and I think uh, one of the things that happens is uh, that inflows a new technology, and then everybody's excited about it and utilize it and see what happens with it. And uh, and sometimes you get a lot of surprises. For example, uh, optogenetics has been around for a while, but nobody's ever done optogenetics in cells other than neurons. Mm. So we decided to work on a population that isn't neurons, but they are in the brain. They're called microglia. They're the immune cell of the brain. Uh, and to our surprise, we activate microglia in specific regions of the brain, and we turn on behaviors. We turn <laughs> off the light, the laser, and then uh, the behavior stops. Okay, so, so we. Yep. So the, these are these are the immune cells of the brain. So they yeah, don't yeah. they don't fire extra potentials like neurons. No, they're, that's they're right. Like, they're like white blood cells. You turn them on, you get behaviors. What kind of behaviors? Uh, and the, in this case, anxiety and OCD. Hmm. <laughs> And that's why we're studying those. Uh, and and the the other thing we've d- discovered, I mean, the dogma was that there's only a single population of microglia. And we come along and say, well, maybe I think there's a second population. Mm. And and there's resistance, obviously. You know, they, uh, they're used to one population. They don't want to think about two populations. But uh, all of a sudden, not only is there two populations, but actually – you should have we should have anticipated you need two populations. I mean, biology wouldn't have it if it doesn't need it. Uh, and the question is, you know, why do you have two populations? And they turn out they work in opposition to each other, not in parallel. One of them increases the behavior, the other decreases the behavior. And then together, they can now set a new set point, uh, depending on the conditions that are in the environment. So it allows them a very sensitive system to be able to shift the level of anxiety. Both grooming, uh, what we see as OCD is uh, over-grooming, pathological grooming. Mm-hmm. The mice continue to groom until they actually have lacerations. And both behaviors are uh, dependent on essentially microglia controlling them. Obviously, they're not, the neurons are controlling all the, the actual beha- making behavior, but the microglia are talking to the and and then controlling the level of uh, behavior output. So do we know how they're actually doing that? So how how are they actually modulating neural activity? Uh, that we don't know. We don't know the neurons they're talking to yet. That's the next step. I mean, right now we know they're talking, but we don't know the conversation, and we don't know, for example, is it ligands or is it direct electrical contacts? Um, because you know all cells have uh, essentially membrane potentials. And they can, and they, and their membrane potential can change with influx of uh, ions. And here, if we use optogenetics to pump it in terms of light, then we're affecting their behavior and changing the output of the microglia, which then talk to neurons and then they respond. And we're interested in that conversation, but we're just setting up the tools to be able to uh, measure that com- conversation. And so. I mean, you're, so you're still you're still going into the lab every day, and you're still doing oh yeah, time oh, research. yeah. full full hundred percent. Is yeah. so how much of that is just, you know, what sort of what keeps for those who don't know, and, and we'll talk about this. You know, you're you're in your mid eighties. You've won uh-huh. the Nobel Prize. You've sort of yeah. you've done it all, so to speak. Yeah. What what what's keeping you going in every day for such a difficult job? 
I think it, curiosity. I mean, I think what's, you know, the, when you see something completely unexpected, then you have an aha period. And that's, you know, that's a rush. <laughs> and it's fun. Uh, and I think uh, that's essentially, I'm not, I'm not out to prove anything now. I simply enjoy the, the science. And, and the, you know, it's almost like a confrontation between nature and yourself. She knows how everything's happening, and you don't. <laughs> you can see what she's doing, but you have no idea how she's doing it. <laughs> and so then the question is, you know, how can we figure that out? And then and eventually, can we use it then to actually help? In the sense of being, you know, anxiety is an enormous problem, especially right now. I mean, COVID has just raised the roof, and it's just rampant all over the world. Uh, and now we have... And the other thing one always has to keep in mind is a little anxiety is fantastic. It keeps you, you know, it keeps you co-focused, essentially. It allows mm -hmm. you to pursue something rather than be distracted. Similarly with grooming, uh, small amounts of grooming are, are gratifying, but pathological ones, which lead to lacerations, is pathology. So it's important to have the right level of both behaviors at the right time depending on what's happening out in the outside world relative to yourself. And so, you know, you just, you say you just elected to decide to switch fields, you know, every 10 years or so you've gotten into neurobiology, you're studying microglia and how they impact the nervous system in the context of OCD and anxiety. How did you pick that field as opposed to just some other area of neuroscience? Well, well <clears throat> uh, at one stage, we worked in developmental biology, then we went to cancer biology, and then into neurobiology. When I was in developmental biology, we were interested in a group of genes called Hox genes, and they're involved in specifying the body plan. They make sure our head is here and our arms are at the right place and all the organs are in the right place and so on. It's a coordination system. But we knocked out one gene, and rather than getting some change in body plan, we actually got a behavioral change. And it was very obvious because these mice were moving all their body hair. <laughs> okay. And it was a surprise, you know. The bodies were fine, but they had this pathological overgrooming phenotype. And so <clears throat> that interests me, you know, why? Because it's, it's, it's an oddball. <laughs> Here you have 39 genes all involved in making your body, and this was interesting in behavior. <laughs> so... Uh, we always kept that in my mind, and, uh, <clears throat> and then this, I decided this is the entry point where I'm going to find out, you know, why do hoxies control uh, behaviors? Yeah, and so for for those who don't know, <clears throat> what are hox genes, and what you know, yeah. what is their basic, uh, most well established function? Hox genes, hox genes are transcription factors, so they're turning on and turning off genes, uh, and they're uh, they're a very specific cluster. Of genes, there are 39 of them, and it's true in mice, it's true in humans, and they're involved essentially in all aspects of making body plants. And they're used by all organisms, a multicellular organism, to control their body plants. I mean, the first thing you decided is, you know, you go from a ball to a, to a, a football, okay, <laughs> something much smaller. So you have, now you have a dimension, okay, and hox genes are involved in setting up that axis. And they set up axes, you know, in all three dimensions, essentially, in the body, and then allow you to make sure that all the parts of the body are in the right place and uh, and can connect up and then be functional. Uh, and, you know, and, and that's a, you know, it's a fascinating group of, 
of genes, and they're very, I mean, they do amazing things. You know, and, you know, just they were first discovered in Drosophila. All of a sudden, an antenna would be coming out of your head. That's a, mis- a function of a hot sheet. <laughs> okay, that's responsible for the, those aberrations. And, <clears throat> and just as I was developing gene targeting, the hot genes were being uh, <clears throat> uh, discovered. And particularly that hoxines may be organisms that besides Drosophila. So the question was, okay, what are they doing in mice? And so that's how we got into developmental biology. So we always have an entry point and an interest point. And then from there, we develop the uh, the conversation. I see. So so these hoxines are involved in setting up the body plan, which side's the head, which mm-hmm. side's the tail, yeah. you know, where everything's right. going to go, what it's going to turn right. into in terms of body parts. So normally yeah. I'm guessing, you know, you, you, you delete a Hox gene or you mess with a Hox gene, you get right. a body plan defect, uh, a body That's part right. goes and, in the wrong spot or something. Very, in a very particular region. So one Hox gene will be operating in this part of the chest, another one just below it and another one above it. Okay. So, we always knew, for example, when we made Hox mutations, there would be something wrong with the body, and we would look at what particular part of the body and then see, okay, see what's happening. Are they involved in limb development? Not only are they involved in limb development, are they involved in making the fingers in the different, you know, because that's a, a change in, in, uh, in, a, in, a, in the anterior posterior direction of the limb. Okay. So, they're they're involved in literally in all those places, and they have to be able to do that. Uh, and and then, but then we all of a sudden saw one that it's called HoxB8 that's involved essentially now in controlling behavior. And so then we got really interested in that as- aspect, but required us to change fields. Hmm. <laughs> so, so, so so you you knocked out that gene, and you didn't see any body plan defects. It was only a behavioral uh, change. Yeah, no, the the body plans are, are are normal, and the only thing was that was apparent was that a lot of hair was missing, and then and that the, it progresses because these these animals can't stop; they just keep on going. Hmm. Interesting, and so that just that just triggers you to, to get into a new field. So it sounds like you're yeah. kind of always looking or, or waiting for, for yeah. an oddball like that. And that, that That's just right. takes you in a new direction. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and then we have, you know, we have a, an entry point and then, and then we have to acquire a new technology in order to study it in their terms. Uh, and therefore we get into optogenetics. Uh, we get into, you know, we have little cameras that are smaller than the little finger, a uh, little fingernail that we can insert into the brain. And then it can, monitor cells moving around in the brain, particularly microglia, because we make them fluorescently red or whatever color we want. And so we can watch them and see where they are and then uh, activate them, uh, for example, with a laser. Yeah. And so, I mean, we've already, we've already mentioned, uh, you know, knockout technology. So, so this is, you know, technology that enables scientists to remove genes or segments of DNA. And and when you take it away, you basically look to see what's broken and and then you can figure out what that gene's doing. So this is actually what you're probably most famous for. This is, you you know, the Nobel Prize in 2007 was given to you and a couple others for uh, discoveries of principles for introducing specific gene modifications in mice by the use of embryonic stem cells. And this was the knockout gene technology. For the uninitiated, can you just explain in, in basic terms, what does this technology do and how, how does it work? I mean, first you have to identify a gene you want to manipulate. Uh, and we can uh, 
uh, make, you know, we can put it into a vector which makes lots of it. And so then we can change it, uh, literally change the sequence. Uh, and we can change one base pair or 10 base pairs or thousands of base pairs. Uh, and one of the first things you often do is simply delete a gene that is a sequence responsible for making that gene and then see essentially what the consequences, as you mentioned, all of a sudden, uh, you know, little finger disappears and we know we're in the program for making little finger. Uh, and it's, it's always that, you know, what you do is perturb the system and then ask what the function, what the function is determined by the perturbation you see. Uh, and uh, and that gives you a clue, essentially, what this gene is doing. And what was amazing in the beginning is, I mean, our concept of what genes, which genes were doing what was completely wrong. I mean, nobody could predict what the consequences would be in a mouse if you removed hot speed seven or eight or whatever. Uh, and then, and, and, but you, you know, always infer the function from what you see in the, in the animal. Uh, and that gives you enormous power. And then once you identify the gene, then we can start changing it in any way we want. We can put in markers that for us, uh, red or green or yellow or whatever. Uh, and that, that allows us to then follow those cells, uh, in the, uh, in the live animal. And again, it's like, you know, the technology is always in vivo. It's always in the live animal because we cannot really, you know, even that today, we can, we don't have the capability of studying complex phenomena except in the animal itself uh, and then do the perturbation in the animal and then see what the consequences and then really realize what the function is. Uh, and I think it's, uh, you know, and, and it's up to the imagination what you do with that. You know, once you have the technology, you could do anything you want with it. I mean, there, there were thousands of genes that we had no idea what they were doing. And the question was, you know, okay, which ones are you going to study? Okay. And I decided, well, Hox genes would be a, a, a great entry point because we know they do dramatic things in Drosophila, flies. So the question is, are they doing the similar things uh, in, in uh, a mammal? Uh, and and then and then take the ball once you... Uh, have it and run with it and and when you developed that technology was that work that you were doing in in your lab at the university of utah and, and when was that happening yeah. no we we started the project i mean i was thinking about the project just before coming to utah but we actually started all the work here uh and uh i mean you know this is you know sometimes you you do science by serendipity all of a sudden you see something you you didn't expect but in this case we actually planned it. I mean, I planned it in the sense I knew what organism I wanted to do, mice, uh, and I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to change genes because there was no other way to do genetics in a mouse. And we, in Drosophila, we can select for mutations because you can work with enormous numbers. In mice, we can work with large numbers, but not enormous numbers. Nobody could afford it. Hmm. Uh, and so, there you had to use very different genetics. We couldn't mutagenize and look for the mutation. We had to create it. And it was obvious we had to create it. And we had to be very specific. We didn't want to just uh, blade it. We wanted to be able to change specific nucleotides. 
uh, so that we could have power to change a gene in any way we wanted. Uh, so, you know, often you want to make more of the gene product rather than less of the gene product and uh, or make it in, in a new area of the body that's normal, that gene doesn't function. So all of those manipulations are doable by gene targeting. And so... Uh- What's the timeline here? When was this work happening? Like when did you start? Uh, this lab? is happening. Uh, I mean, I came to Utah in '73, and so I uh, started really seriously probably in '75. And one of the first things you do when you want to do work is try to get a grant. <laughs> so you submit it to NIH, and I thought, you know, I was very excited. They send it back, a very good study section. I actually knew who the people were and actually personally knew some of them. And their response was impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, no money. Uh, And so there, you know, all of a sudden you have a big question to do. You know, what are you going to do with that information? Are you going to quit, do a new project, or do you have the guts to actually continue that project? And I decided I would go for it. An enormous risk. Four years later, if I'd failed, I would be done. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so I so get a- can you explain that piece? So so you're trying to get funding to do this very exciting project, which we know now, you know, later yeah. turns in, you know, it's 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 a Nobel worthy line of work. Right. But at the time, the people deciding whether or not to fund it don't think it's feasible. They don't think it's possible right. you could do this. Yeah. So how did you actually do it? Did you already have some grant money and you just had to yeah, hope it worked? I, well, at that time, in that grant, I had three parts, two dull parts and one exciting part. They say, drop the exciting part and do the two dull parts. <laughs> so I took the money for the dull parts and used it all for gene targeting. <laughs> <laughs> so if it wouldn't have worked, basically yeah, you would have been screwed. Four year, yeah, four years later, I would have nothing. because And, and plus, I had spent their money to do something they didn't advise <laughs> now i mean in the early days of your lab you know you i don't know if you had tenure yet or what but what what was motivating you to take that type of risk i did have tenure but i think the motivation is simply you know uh, i made the assumption i mean and there wasn't any data to support it that i knew that homologous recombination existed okay and in particularly in, uh, for example, uh, in mice, and then, uh, in, at that time, uh, in other organisms, homologous recombination was used for sex. It was used for chromosomes. That is, you have a mother, a, a, a paternal copy and a maternal copy, uh, and then you want to now make a, an individual which has mixtures of those, that chromosome containing parts of one and the other, and it used homologous recombination to generate that mixture. So that was what was known about homologous recombinations. But I made the assumption that they would also utilize it in normal sex, in what we call somatic cells, everything but germ cells. Uh, and then, and if it was in somatic cells, then there it should be able to work and do what I wanted. Because the machinery is there. All I had to learn is how does the machinery work? And then how does it, how does it work the way I wanted it to work? That is to do things that I wanted rather than what nature wants to do with it. And that's that's what the uh, the the jump was. They didn't believe that. What they argued was that the exogenous piece of DNA would never find the same sequence in the whole genome, uh, which is you know, three billion base pairs. Uh, so, uh, and I said, you know, the machinery has to, might, might be there. 
And if it is, then it has to be able to utilize it in a workable fashion, and therefore the frequency wouldn't be impossible. And so it was, uh, it was a jump a century uh, in uh, you know how much you would believe that. They said it just wouldn't work. Literally said it was impossible. Uh, and I said, I think if we can make it work. And fortunately, four years later, we didn't have it work. I sent the, uh, a continuation grant to the very same study section, and they said, we're glad you didn't follow our advice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, it's, you know, so timing is, is important. And, and do you feel like, um, like in science today, that level of risk taking is possible? How, how much of it was like you and your own personality? Yeah. How much of it was yeah. the environment, the general scientific environment? And, and is that type of risk taking uh, possible uh, today? Well, it's still positive today in the sense that I'm still having grants triaged. <laughs> okay. And I said, you know, literally, I said back on. A note saying deja vu, it must be a pretty good idea. <laughs> no, I think, you know, I think in science you have to take risks. NIH doesn't want to take risks. You know, they want to make sure that if you give you money, that you do something useful with it. And uh, risks uh, don't allow you to do that. But I think in science you have to do it. And somehow we have to still, we don't have a good system for uh, uh, getting that. So the risk is always being taken by the scientist, <laughs> and it should be the other way around. They should be, you know, both should be taking risks. <laughs> uh, and you know, and the English system does have that. Uh, what they do, if if they think somebody's really good, we'll just support that person. Okay, somebody like Kendrew, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, works twenty five years of trying to figure out the structure of a protein, never publishes a paper. Then it works, and then they publish, and they get the Nobel Prize. Okay. But they've been supporting them for 25 years without you know, requiring papers. Okay. That doesn't happen in this country. Hmm. Uh, and I think it's so bad because I think we need both. I mean, you have to take risks in order to do you know, really significant uh, new stuff. And, yeah. and I like being in that position. I'm, I like to be working in an area where I don't feel crowded and I have, you know, and I'm doing stuff that is highly risky, but I think if they, it works, there's a high payoff. And that's true of this uh, project with uh, anxiety. And we're doing it. Uh, I'm having a terrible time getting it funded <laughs> and, uh, you know, just battle. Uh, and that's, but now, uh, you know, I, I think it's working and we're starting to publish papers on it. And then I think we'll, it will be accepted. Yeah. How does, um, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, you can, ha you can, science can be set up in a way where you are supporting a promising individual and not requiring them to publish papers every year yeah. to, to continue yeah. getting funded and doing their work. Um, yeah. But today in the U.S. especially, you know, the currency is papers. You're meant to publish your work in a peer-reviewed right. journal in a good one. Um, yep. that, that, you know, that's the proof that you should be uh, continued to be funded and, and do good work. Right. Right. If you're going to do it the other way and you're going to just fund an individual and give them lots of time and space to do higher risk stuff, how do you actually do that? How do you actually identify who's no, worth no, supporting? And that's their that's their risk. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's obvious, and I'm sure that in England, scientists are being supported that eventually aren't productive. Okay, so it is a big risk because you're put, you know continually pouring money, but you have to have the confidence that you know that that person. 
uh, you know, one is they have to explain what they're wanting to do in a logical matter that says it's possible. Uh, <clears throat> but on the other hand, you know, they know it may take a long time before they're ready to publish. And it, literally some of these projects do take 25 years. It's not in the five-year bracket. I mean, we're all set up for doing everything every four years because the fifth year you have to get renewed. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they were willing to take that risk. Uh, and I think the Cavendish lab in England was, you know, famous for that. They have lots of people that they were supporting in that uh, environment and doing brilliantly in all areas, immunology, you name it, you know, crystallography, D DNA structure, <laughs> Watson Crick, and so on. Uh, so I think it's, uh, it, uh, my feeling is that, you know, obviously it, Sometimes you fail when you take risk. That's what risk, how risk is defined, in essence, uh, that there has to be some failures, but you have to be able to just swallow it and know that the returns are going to eventually be much greater than without doing that. But uh, NIH has never been willing to do that system, or the U.S. has never been able to uh, convince itself it should do that system. Hmm. So it's, it's, it sounds like it's it's sort of always basically been this way in the U.S. It has has the way yep. that science, your science and just science generally, the way it's been funded and, and the way it's conducted, has it changed much in the U.S. over the course of your career? No, it's always been tough. <laughs> the only thing I always see is the negative aspects of it, that, you know, when, when you can't get grants, because, uh, you know, pretty much everybody's just dependent on NIH funding for doing medical research. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, you just have to, I mean, literally right now, for example, it comes out of my uh, uh, retirement fund, okay, <laughs> the support of my lab. Okay, so that's that's risky also. <laughs> you know, uh, I burn through my money like, you know, all of this stuff is very expensive. I mean, mm -hmm. just, you know, we think it's getting cheaper and cheaper, but what's happening is actually it's getting more and more expensive simply because now we have new tools that are very expensive. Uh, so it's, uh, no, there's, there's no way to beat it. Uh, you just have to go along with it and hope. And I think, uh, you know, I'm sure there are uh, failures in now. You know, if people haven't gone through the, you know, they, they take a big risk and they don't make it and, and, and we, nobody hears about it. <clears throat> And so, you know, you've been at Utah running your lab for, for decades now. What were you doing before that? What, what was your PhD and your postdoc years like that, that uh, set you up to get there? Right. And that was all at Harvard. And uh, it's fantastic. I mean, it was just at the beginning of molecular biology, literally when, when it's being born. And, you know, and what made it work was with people coming in, the influx from people in chemistry, uh, biology, genetics, uh, medicine and so on, physics, <laughs> you name it, uh, all of them coming there together to be able to uh, work on a new way of doing science. Uh, and, and it was, you know, it was mind-boggling because it, you, you turn around, I mean, nothing was known. You know, a protein, how do you make a protein? That was my first uh, project, essentially, <laughs> figure out how does protein synthesis start, how does it end, and, and how does it continue, okay? None of that was known. So all, uh, no, you could turn in any direction and find you know, a significant problem. And uh, the other thing that also was heady was that, you know, you could work something of, you know, a year or two 
and then submit a, 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 a paper to sell. Okay. <laughs> now, you know, you have to work almost 10 years to get a paper need to sell. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very different, uh, very different area and very different environment. And, uh, but it was, it was really fun because it is, uh, you know, it was the beginning and, uh, you know, and the brilliant minds from all over the world were participating in it. And, you know, I read a paper the summer before starting school at, uh, Harvard. Uh, it was by <clears throat> Nirenberg, and you know, he put poly A in the optical poly <laughs> All of a sudden, wow, now here we have the tools now to figure out the genetic code and so on, so on, and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and that, you know, and similarly, you know, regulation of genes was all uh, Jacob and Manobo, you know, we're figuring out how genes are turned on uh, or turned off. And, uh, and, and so it was heady. It was absolutely amazing. And so you started your lab in, in the 70s, so that your postdoc, your, your graduate school years, that must have been what, the 1960s? Uh, right. Uh, 61 is when I started my uh, graduate school. And then I jumped directly. I should have gone into a postdoc, but I jumped into uh, a position at Harvard Medical School uh, right after uh, being a graduate student. And so, so in grad school, is that when you were, you were working on protein synthesis? Yeah, right, right. And that was uh, under Watson, right? Right, right. And Watson, Watson uh, and as again, in as in Watson and Crick. As in Watson and Crick. And uh, think you know, and it was uh, he, he was uh, you know his intuition was amazing. He wasn't uh, you know he couldn't do experiments in the sense of using his hands, <laughs> but he really thought. You know, he thought about things and could figure out how nature was doing stuff, uh, and then uh, and then we did it. <laughs> you know, there were, and he had a, a large lab, and there was, uh, you know, he took care of me like uh, you know, it was amazing. I mean, I as a graduate student, I have a technician, <laughs> oh, wow. so you know, so I was you know I was producing papers. You know, I don't know ten papers, I think, as a graduate student. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. Just for those, for those listening, that's, yeah. So today, you know, typically you'll get one, maybe two. Yeah, uh, more right. than that would be considered remarkable. Yeah, right. That's right. No, that's amazing. What was, yeah. uh, what, what was it like working for him? What was he like, uh, his personality and just no, as a person? Extremely, uh, very uh, intense, very supportive. Uh, and, and, you know, and you could do anything you wanted. I mean, you know, uh, we would talk with him, and he'd get us excited, and we kept going. And, you know, he would play tricks on us. He would set up dummy, uh, essentially, competitions, saying, oh, oh, this guy is working on something very similar. You know, nothing, uh, uh, you know, how does uh, uh, protein synthesis start? Oh, but, you know, somebody's working just on that system. So you're working like crazy to make sure, you know, you're not second. Because in science, unfortunately, second doesn't count. <laughs> So, but uh, but on the other hand, you know what he really was—he was just friends with the other people. So you know, he we did they 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 short uh, shared information, and uh, and there were things were uh, uh, proceeded. And I think, but I think you know the atmosphere was uh, really gratifying and and very exciting. And they were tough. I mean, I had both Wally Gilbert and Watson as a uh, mentor. And they were shred us apart when we gave lab meetings. 
But the good thing is that then once you got into the real world, it was a piece of cake. (laughs) (laughs) So you had already gone through all of that. So I think actually it's good. I mean, you know, at the time we thought it was rough, but I think what uh, the outcome is that, uh, you know, it made you feel more secure. And I mean, you must have, I mean, you were around in, in the soul, sort of uh, the golden years of molecular biology, people yep. are figuring out how the genetic code works, what the code is, yep. how yep. proteins are being made, all, all the stuff that, you know, we, yep. I guess we take for granted today that we've known yep. now for a long time. I mean, you must have met so many amazing scientists. Yep. Like, did oh, you yeah. meet, no, did Crick you meet would, Crick? Oh yeah. He, he would come, you know, twice a year to the lab. Uh, you know, everybody, I mean, everybody knew everybody. And he would travel, you know, the whole world multiple times every year. So you knew what all the other labs were doing and as well as keeping it up with yourself. So, no, so it was, uh, and you know, and what the one thing you always learn is the two brains are always better than one. Synergy is much better than competition. Uh, And I think uh, that's a rule that's really worthwhile because, you know, often people think, oh, you know, I'm afraid of the competition. And even if you're working on the exact same stuff, you have different reasons for doing those experiments. So, again, it's always synergy wins. And um, so so back then, molecular biology is this new field. We're trying to understand how biological systems work at the molecular level, at the level of DNA and proteins and and things at that scale. But it was very, it was attracting people from all over. So it's like the the new hot field, the the ability to to do these experiments and 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 understand things at that level was unlocked by technological development. But it wasn't just biologists. You had people from physics and chemistry, everyone sort of converging in. And that's part of what made it so exciting. Is there a field of science today in, in biology, generally speaking, that you think is like the the modern day molecular biology where you have that kind of confluence? I think the nearest thing is neuroscience. And again, it's, it's getting in, you know, lots of people for computation uh, and into the field and so on. And I think that's really healthy. Uh, and I, so I think that that's one of the reasons I'm in the field and why it's exciting to me. So I think uh, I think that's the nearest thing to to those. Uh, and uh, you know, and until recently, the tools weren't there to do more science. I mean, you know, people thought about it, but the tools weren't there. But now all of a sudden they're there, and they're coming in faster and faster. I mean, so it's a uh, no, it's, it's a very exciting uh, area right now, I think. And, you know, if I were a new scientist, I would have been going into neuroscience at the beginning. <laughs> okay, so, uh, no, I think, uh, and I don't know where where the next step will be. Uh, I think neuroscience is going to occupy us uh, for quite a while, simply because the, the complexities are enormous. I mean, they're staggering in, in essence, and, you know, because you're, you're working with, Billions of interactions in our own brain uh, in millisecond timescales, where now, for example, you know, you go into a machine and they tell you to think about an apple. Fifteen minutes later, they can tell you where you're thinking about the apple. Okay. That's we need to shorten that by six orders of magnitude. And you know, then in that process, there'll be several noble biases. You know, what can you simply look at what you can't do. And then that's where where uh, you should be looking at, <laughs> and uh, and and know that that's coming. And and I'm sure you know that window will be shortened down to milliseconds in ten less or year less years, even though now we look at it as daunting and impossible. 
and before before you started your PhD, um, what, like what were you doing in college? Were were you doing science? Were you interested in science? How did you get? How, when no. did you know that you wanted to to go into research? It, uh, as an undergraduate, I was actually a political science major for the first quarter, <laughs> and, and I looked around and I couldn't find the science in political science. I switched to physics, <laughs> so and from then on, it was just science. Uh, and uh, and then I switched essentially to molecular biology because I went to Antioch College, which has a work study program. You work a quarter and you study a quarter and you work mm-hmm. a quarter. And the jobs are all over the country in the fields that you're of interest. So, for example, I was working at MIT and uh, in, in, there, again, molecular biology just starting. And then all of a sudden you get into it. And I saw, you know, forget about physics and go into molecular biology. So that's when the switch occurred was uh, just as a, a later stages of my undergraduate work, but working in it. And I worked in Alex Switzer's lab at, at MIT and, you know, I worked enormous amounts and had a lot of fun. And uh, so before that, where where did you grow up as as a kid as a teenager? Uh, okay. <laughs> That's a long story. I learned that I grew up in the streets of Italy during the war, so I was a uh, essentially uh, was a thief for my first uh, for five years, <laughs> <laughs> you know, getting my own food by you know, taking it. So that was that's World War Two. Yeah, World War Two. And so so. In, you're in it. You're you're from Italy as a child. As a child, uh-huh. you're living there. Um, eventually, you make it to the U.S. and and get educated here. Uh, when when, when yeah. did you first get to the United States? Well, my mother was uh, she was actually a poet, and she got her education at the Sorbonne in France in Paris, and then she started uh, pamphleteering against Nazism and fascism. Uh, and then things got very hot, and she knew she was going to be picked up. And so she moved up to the Tyrol uh, of Italy, and then that's where the Gestapo came and then took her to Dachau. And at that time, she said, you know, you're going to be better off on your own than you are with me. Uh, and that was a wise decision. And, and But I transitioned. I lived in, on a farm that she had provided funds for to take care of me. But those funds ran out in a year, so then I was in the streets from then on. But she survived Dachau, and it took, took her, uh, that was in 45, and took her over a year, almost two years to find me, because I was moving all the time. Uh, and then she found me, and then she had a brother living in the United States, so he sent money for a boat ride and went to U.S. Uh, in 1946. Wow. Um, so you, you, you got to the U.S. in 1946. Is that New, New York? Uh, in New York, right? That was Island. And, you know, so spent the night looking at the Statue of Liberty, and then crossed through Ellis Island, and then, and then you know, I got on a car and drove to a commune. My my uncle, uh, who was a physicist, lived on a commune, and then the next day I went to school. You know, I have never been into school before, didn't know the language or anything, and uh, proceeded. How old were you? Nine. <laughs> okay, so you you got here at a pretty young age. I yep. mean, it's just it's just like in the history books. You 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 were at Ellis Island. You took a boat over the Atlantic. What was that? Do you remember that? What was that like? That was a two weeks uh, trip across the ocean. It was a slow boat. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and it was mostly all uh, refugees, I think, that were coming over. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, and, you know, before that, I'd had, you know, one hot meal in nine years. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you go into a situation where, you know, I mean, and also, you know, no, no parents to then having 65 parents on a commune. Well, the transition was enormous. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I was savage. I mean, I was, you know, I was a street kid. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, and, uh, and, and had, and had, didn't know how to interact with people. And, you know, literally they said, you know, I would never learn how to read because I didn't know how to read. I've never been in school before. And, uh, and so, but, uh, you know, my aunt taught me how to read, uh, and, uh, and then it proceeded. Uh, and they, you know, they, they were so convinced that I could make it that they said, you know, this kid, you have to put him into a trade school. Mm. So, and, uh, and they even had picked, they picked out the school and so on and so forth. So, but, uh, uh, you know, the kids, what's amazing about kids is they don't question anything. The situation is just what it is. Hmm. Uh, it, there's no rights or wrong or anything associated with it. Uh, you simply you know, exist in that situation that you're in. And you, if you're, you know, I, I, you know, I was smart. I mean, you know, I would study people. I would study their behaviors and so on. So I'd know when, you know, first of all, money didn't make any sense. I couldn't take money from a person. If I go to a store and present them with money, they'd call the police. Okay. Where would I get money? <laughs> so, so you know, the, your values are completely different. All that's important is food and shelter. Uh, and that's what you have to uh, you have to figure out how to do that on a daily basis on your own, age four. So, so you get to Ellis Island, you're living with your uncle and a bunch of other people. You learn to read. You don't start learning how to read until like the age of nine. Did you? It was that uh, English or Italian that they taught you? Uh, no, they uh, English. English. Everything from. I wasn't allowed to speak any Italian. They wanted to make the transition. They, you know, that was a mistake. I think they should have maintained Italian. Uh, we could maintain ten languages at once if we want to, but they thought I would learn English quicker if I simply never saw Italian again or heard it. Uh, so it was a complete hundred percent transition. How long did it take you approximately to uh, to learn to to speak and to read English? Probably three, four weeks. So okay, so very, you picked it up very quickly at that very, age. Very quick, very quick. Yeah. You know, wow. uh, you know. And then when you finally get into school, I mean, you must have gotten into school at some point, um, regular grade school. Um, what was that like? And what like were you a good student, or did you not like school because of of your childhood? I think. Both. I mean, I think. I mean, one is they simply said, "Okay, you go. You're because you're your age. You're a third grader." <laughs> so that's where I started. Uh, and uh, the teacher was really very good. She was uh, amazingly good. Uh, when I first got there, she gave me a roll of uh, butcher paper. This is that big rolls of paper that was just you could roll forever. And they were studying Holland, and she said, "Paint a mural." I mean, she communicated. Uh, you know, hand wise, waving wise, paint a paint a mural about Holland. Everything you know, so windmills, ice skating, <laughs> the dike, and so on and so forth, cheese. Uh, everything was in that mural, and in that process, I didn't have to have language English, 
but I was learning English as then, you know, as I started the students interacting and so on. So, they, you know, she provided an environment which was friendly and encouraging, uh, but they at the same time took cognizant that, you know, it was going to take, take a little while. Uh, and uh, so that's, uh, that worked. Uh, and then from then on, uh, you know, as a good student, I've always got good grades, but initially in that school, uh, academia was frowned upon. There was a lot of tough kids coming from an army, uh, barrack and so on that were at that school, and uh, education was shunned upon. It was, uh, you know, you had to be there because you had to go to school, but they didn't, nobody encouraged it, so nobody felt that it was a good thing to be doing. And then I switched from there in high school to a prep school, a quicker crisp school, which was completely opposite. That was a completely academic and uh, you know, got you ready for college. Uh, and so I think that there was a very important in that transition that all of a sudden you saw the power of education. But even then, you know, what was really important at that time was sports and uh, and women, girls. So those, those were the highlights. And uh, But I still was getting good grades without doing any work. Uh, and so, you know, they all the letters would say, you know, you've got to concentrate, you've got to work on this, but so on and so forth. But, you know, a kid does what he enjoys. And, and I enjoyed sports. I was very good at wrestling. And also, uh, and even though I was very small, I played football and then played soccer uh, and then played baseball. So, you know, year round, I was always sports, 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 sports. And then when I went to college, uh, I just switched on the diet. So now I purposely went, I could have gone to you know, sports scholarships. Uh, in wrestling, I was really good. Uh, and, but I went to a school that had no sports. And, and then just right there, I said, okay, uh, this is starting to get serious <laughs> and uh, started academics and, and then flourished there. And, and I knew I was good because a lot of the kids, this was Antioch, but a lot of the kids were coming from Bronx School of Science. Uh, in New York, and they were very good students, and I easily competed with them. So, you know, I, it, it sounds like, you know, there, there was a lot of stuff in your early life that was outside of your control um, yeah, that you right. just had to adapt to it, right? You had That's to right. yeah. separate from your mother. You had to live, yeah. figure yeah. out how to live on your own. Oh, you had to right. suddenly go to America, learn English. Yeah. You were constantly put into these completely different contexts where you were just forced to adapt. Do you think that had anything to do with your your style as a scientist i think so yeah and and certainly also uh you know the commune was also really important i mean i don't think i could have made that transition uh, you know that biggest transition except in that commune where 65 people are all concerned with you uh and 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 in a social way and so i think that was really important because you know when i first came in i really was an animal and they you know they just had to tame me, <laughs> and, uh, and, and they, you know, and they did it. You know, Quakers are, are money means nothing. Everything is service. You know, you're brought on the world to do something to make the world a better place. Uh, and I think, uh, and and your the education is, you know, is topmost. That was that's the most important thing uh, for you. Uh, and I think, you know. And again, and again, you know, shelter and being taken care of, and lots of activities for kids. I mean, enormous number of activities because, you know, we did all sorts of stuff uh, that uh, that weren't available to the 
uh, kids uh, outside the community. Uh, you know, we would go into Philadelphia to the art museum and paint. <laughs> no kid anywhere else was be doing that. <laughs> so you're exposed to everything. Uh, and I think that was also uh, quite meaningful. And then finally, you know, the, my uncle was a superb physicist. I mean, he made the first micro, uh, microscope. Hmm. He's in quantum mechanics, uh, you know, when quantum mechanics was just being born uh, and, and, and participating in that. So, uh, you know, and that background was extremely important, even though they didn't push. They didn't, you know, everything, no, nobody ever yelled. <laughs> everything was very quiet and, uh, and uh, smooth. And so, I mean, you, you were obviously able to adapt and assimilate once you got to America and you started, you know, getting formal education and all of this stuff. Um, but you mentioned being a feral kid in Italy. What do you remember from from your years in Italy when you were living on your own? What what was that like, and and what were you doing? Literally, all we think about is food, <laughs> and you know, and you'd go days without food. I mean, it's not that every day you had food. You, you know, you had to take opportunity of when you had it, and then and and then eat. Uh, so that occupied you, and 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 uh, all the time. 24 hours a day, essentially, because, you know, if you go three days after without food, then you start getting hungry. And I can now still, you know, I can go four or five days without eating anything, not even thinking about it. Okay. So the, the body adjusts to whatever circumstance you're in. Uh, and what you think about it is, uh, you know, what, what will help, okay? Uh, for example, sometimes I worked with another person and sometimes I worked alone. And then uh, and then if you find somebody that you could click with, I mean, two people are always better because one can distract and the other could do the operation. So two can always function a lot better than other than separate. But if you find somebody that works, then you stick with that person. Uh, and it's always about survival. And are, are you talking about stealing food? That's how you were getting it. Oh, yeah. That's that's the only way I got. Nobody was going to give me anything. They didn't have anything. And this is during war. So, you know, nobody ever, you know, I never thought about begging. That would have been a waste of time. Uh, so it's, it's always uh, you take what you can. So you're and stealing you, food. And in order to do that, you have to know the situation. You have to know the people there, uh, you know, what how they function, and then take advantage of that. And do you so think... I mean, this probably forced you as a young child to be very perceptive, to watch yeah, people, right. to study yeah. their behavior and, and figure right. out what they're going to do next. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And I think that does, I mean, that does keep going. I mean, I think, you know, my I use my senses a lot, particularly visual senses. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, and, and in science, you know, we see things. <laughs> that's, uh, every, you know, seeing something is, you know, Way, way better than anything else you could think about, about in terms of sensory perception. But I think, uh, and you use those eyes very well, and you train them. I think, you know, you learn uh, 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 to be uh, essentially uh, to, to, to not be in a rush, really. You have to be patient. You have to study the situation. And then, and then because the people that didn't, didn't survive. So there's it's uh, the Darwin and principle taking place on the streets, uh, and you know, and, and I survived, and I think I survived simply because I was good at what I was doing, and and you know, I took care for it, uh, and uh, and used my senses in a you know helpful way than in a non-productive way. How much uh, did I, 
how much did you understand what was like did you understand that there was a war going on and did you understand like why your mother had to separate from you yeah and at that time you know i knew uh i knew both things uh german and italian so when the Gestapo came i knew you know what the conversation was all about so i knew exactly why she was going and where she was going and and that i'm likely not going to see her for a long time i didn't know that was would be forever but it that, that was certainly a possibility. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and then I went to, I was on a farm for almost a year uh, before then leaving that for good. What, um, what's the earliest memory that, that you have? Uh, the earliest is actually when the Gestapo came with, uh, to pick up my mother. Uh, I mean, I, I've actually seen where uh, the farm that I was on since then, uh, they actually uh, flashed it on the, uh, uh, in, in, uh, newspapers and so on. So then I, they had a picture of the house and I recognized it and they took me there and they had actually the same family was still there uh, on the farm and uh, they still had all the papers from my mother that she had, you know, poetry and so on that uh, she had left. They kept them, you know, for I don't know, 60 years <laughs> and then gave them to me uh, at that time. Uh, and so I think, you know, those are the, those are the recollections you see, but my first very memory is uh, when they came, and it mm-hmm. was clear that they, you know they, they were going to take her away. So, so for for those years that you were living on the street, basically by yourself, um, and the war is going on, and you're separated from your mother, what like were you scared most of the time? Were you how did it feel just to be a kid no, in that I, environment? Yeah, no, you're not scared. Uh, no, you're really concentrating and concentrating on food. And, uh, you know, so I knew essentially where all the farms were. I knew where their chickens were. I knew how to steal eggs, <laughs> you know, you name it. Uh, I knew what, you know, what was guarding the, that farm. These usually big dogs. And so you had to be aware of that. Uh, and then, but in the, in the town, then it's all the street vendors and the small shops that uh, were the, your targets. So it, it sort of sounds like, you know, you're in this very precarious, uh, you know, uh, dangerous situation. You're you're a young kid on your own, but it sounds like you were very concentrated and motivated on survival, on just getting yeah. food. Yeah. Is it fair to yeah. say that this, you know, there was no learned helplessness. There was not a lot of anxiety. Yeah, right. You were you were you were focused on survival, yeah. but, but you didn't and, and necessarily he, feel you know, bad. Right. And he also knew, you know, that in 10 to 12 days, you have to move on. Because by that time, everybody knew who you were, <laughs> and they would keep an eye on you rather than you keeping an eye on them. So then I'd have to move to a new village, a new town, and kept progressing, going further and further south hmm. uh, during that whole period of time. That's why my mother couldn't figure out you know, where I was. Uh, and she took it literally two years to find me. So when you, when you first separated from your mother and when you were a baby, what, what part of Italy <laughs> were you in? Uh, it's all northern, uh, all essentially from the Tyrol down to a, a city called, or I guess it's a city, Reggio Emilia, which is just below, um, uh, you know, the big, Verona is the biggest city there. And by the time you got to America, was the war still going on or had it ended? So, yeah, the... Uh, she was liberated in '45. Then she picked me up in October of uh, of '46, and then uh, she had to then uh, she had to uh, 
go to court to get custody. Um, and my father fought the custody. <laughs> so, but uh, amazingly, in Italy, it's a very paternal country. Uh, she won. <laughs> so she did. She did get the custody, uh, and then and then a week later, we're on the boat from Naples to uh, New York. Why? So um, took very quickly. I see. And did your mother stay in Italy, or did she come to America as well? No, she came with me. And, and uh, your your father you know, stayed. She never recovered. I mean, uh, she never mentally recovered from Dachau. I see. So she. Uh, so she. Uh, she, so she really wasn't able to take care of me once we came to the United States. That's why my aunt and uncle, her brother, essentially took care of me. I see. And so did, did she ever talk about it, about her experiences? No, no and, uh, you know, and I pushed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was relentless, but she wouldn't talk. She wouldn't absolutely would not talk about it. I mean, little dribbles, but not nothing significant. Mm -hmm. And what, like why... So your parents weren't together; they were separated. Um, well, my father, yeah, my father's in Italy. But they never got married, uh, so that was a, a bit of fling, essentially. Uh, and and she was very smart; she didn't marry him. He's sort of a very black person, not black, literally black, but uh, 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 not a, a well, be, uh, no, to care of other people. Uh, he thought about him a lot about himself. I see. Handsome, handsome uh, Air Force, but uh, <laughs> but uh, not a, not a uh, something you look up to. And so you know, you you get to America, and it sounds like you you adapt pretty quickly, and yeah, you, know, you, you yeah. learn the language, and you're doing okay in school, and all of this stuff. Um, like like do you do you recall those being was it exciting to go to america was it a happy time oh, yeah. did it, did no, it feel no, good yeah. you know my nickname was cheerio because i was always smiling you know, <laughs> what else did you smile about <laughs> you know you know everything was available now all of a sudden you know i mean it was very funny when i first got into my house you know, in the middle of the night, I would get up and go down to the refrigerator and take stuff. Uh, and then on one night, uh, my uncle shows up and says, you know, you don't have to steal any other stuff. <laughs> you can have anything you wanted. <laughs> okay. Oh, so, so you were, you were, you were, you were stealing food. You didn't need to steal just out of habit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what, uh, when you were, when you were on the streets of Italy, what was, um, what was the food that was most common or what was something that, what was like, what was really exciting to get? What was your favorite thing to steal? I mean, you, everything you ate was raw. I mean, so because you don't, I didn't have any place to cook it. Uh, so, you, you know, so it's always vegetables and fruits and eggs. Uh, eggs were probably, you know, they were big, but, uh, but they were also much rarer. Mm. Uh, you know, you had to figure out where a chicken coop was and, and then get it. Uh, when not having dogs get you instead, so uh, uh, so it was mostly just fruit and uh, vegetables, and the fruits uh, you know I, I could get in the trees, so I could climb trees and get whatever I wanted there, uh, as long as it was right. And I think uh, I mean where things got tough was you know in later winter when there wasn't uh, things that you could get outside, and so then you had to get it from the from the shopkeepers. And um, I mean, but again, so it's stuff that you could just run and with and then eat. 
yeah, given given your early childhood and your relationship to food there, you know, you come to America and it's completely different, a different context with food. And and also just like so thinking about food and diet and your, you know, your early life history, um, and the fact that, you know, you're still running a lab and you're still you know, you're still, you're still going, um, yeah. you know, all these years later, what's your relationship to, to diet today? Are you very particular with your diet? Are you disciplined oh, yeah. with no, it? Very, yeah. Very particular. And I'm a pathological exerciser <laughs> so, mm. but to the point that, you know, I, I, I put in about four hours of exercise every day. Oh, what do you do? Exercise. Uh, I run, I do, you know, that cardiovascular, I roll and then I do weights. While you're still lifting, you're still lifting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. And how have you? You just have you always been that way? You've just always been yeah. athletic. Yeah. 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 And no, how like do you? Th- how important do you think that's been just to give you like the mental endurance to have like, such a long important. scientific career? I think so. No, I think I think it's really important. I think you know you. This thing loves oxygen, and so and that's so exercise will make sure that your heart's good enough to really pump away and give you the oxygen it needs. So it's uh no, and I think exercise is extremely important. It's and it's free. <laughs> you just have to do it and set aside the time to do it. Uh, and I think uh, you know I get up at four thirty and do two hours of exercise then, and then they do two hours of exercise instead of eating lunch so only mm. two meals a day uh, so you do breakfast and dinner yeah, yeah yeah and what do you what do you like to eat um you said you were pretty disciplined uh, about I your diet. everything i mean i uh i mean i'm i eat probably meat at most once a week uh, and then uh and then uh, and so on and so forth but uh and and, and uh, very careful to eat organic and I think uh, you know pesticides are really bad for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think uh, uh, you know, eat quality food. And I think part of that should be green. <laughs> Just so it's. I mean, it's, uh, what I eat, I change quite a bit, but I just make sure I don't eat things I shouldn't be eating. Uh, mm-hmm. But you don't need a lot of sugar, and you don't need a uh, you know, a lot. But I love pasta. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you know, the one hot meal I ever had was actually pumpkin ravioli. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and that was prepared essentially uh, by a uh, puta, a whore. <laughs> uh, uh, she prepared the only hot meal I ever had in the, while I was in Italy from, you know, age four onward <laughs> <laughs> to nine. So, you know, thinking back, you know, just thinking, you know, you talked about how basically, you know, your life history probably influenced your scientific uh, style mm-hmm. in many ways, your ability to yeah. adapt to new situations yeah. and just be willing to jump into new contexts yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and, um, and even, uh, you know, be self-sufficient. Mm. You know, I think that's a big part. I mean, we, you know, we could send out to people to do sex, tissue sectioning, for example, you know, uh, but we do our own <laughs> because we look at the slides much more carefully than any other any pathology would. Uh, so we really try to be self-sufficient and do everything that's required and, and acquire the new technologies that we need uh, to do it. And so, so you know, so it's a. Uh, but I, I like the the lab to be really uh, capable. You know, not be restricted by uh, technology that is encompass the technology rather than ship it out somewhere to, to, for something to be done. Uh, 
And in the process, you know, you know, the reason I switched out of physics is simply because physics was getting to be bigger and bigger machines and bigger, and bigger groups. And I wanted something to do with my own hands. Uh, so mm. uh, <clears throat> rather than, uh, than uh, be relying on this enormous uh, machine to be able to do, get your data. And, you know, how, you know, has, you know, over the course of your scientific career in the United States, you know, going from your PhD through your postdoc to, to building and, 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 and running your own lab, how has, you know, just across the entire field in, in biology and academia generally, how has like scientific culture changed over the course of your career? Has it changed in drastic ways or is it mostly it does. the same? You know, and it, what's also surprising is that each area, you know, when I'm in developmental biology or whether you're in cancer biology, the society associated with that is, is different. Mm. You know, in some fields are much more open. And, uh, you know, in a curiosity, for example, is developmental biology was much more open than the other fields that I went into. And I would guess a big part of that is that women had a predominant role in developmental biology going back to the beginning. Mm. So it's a different culture, uh, and it affects it, that culture. And so you know, so those same things, you, you know, you see, actually. You, know, you just don't hear about them, you actually see them. Uh, and I, I think, uh, no, each each uh, field has its own uh, its own peculiarities, good points and bad points. Uh, and some fields are much more hostile than others. You know, what are you doing in my turf? Mm. <laughs> what attitude. do you think? What do you think determines that? What makes a field hostile? Uh, I think that, uh, fortunately, I think it's often the top leadership <laughs> in that field that uh, sets the tone. And I think if you have some people there that are uh, difficult, then it, that's going to be a difficult field. <laughs> they they have an enormous influence, I think. And uh, rather than uh, you know, and then whether if the, the top people are are more friendly, then it's a, the whole culture becomes friendly. What um you know for like a PhD student or an aspiring scientist today, someone young at the beginning, yeah. How would you how would you advise them around? how to uh, develop a sense of what they want to study and what field to go into. You know, I still, uh, you know, I still always say, you know, go into the field that you're really passionate about. I mean, because you, nobody can give you that passion. And so you have to have it. And, 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 and people have different reasons for passion. Uh, you know, the association, family members having cancer or whatever. Uh, and I think, so to me, so you go back, you know, science is really an individual enterprise, I and mean, it's really the people in it that make it. Uh, and so, I think what you have to do is really, you know, if you, if you enjoy it and think about it, then you go do do a do <laughs> will do a good job. But if you don't, if it's uh, not that uh, integrated into your soul, uh, then you're not going to do a good job because you know you never know when a good idea pops up. You know, it pops up, you know, anywhere randomly. But if you're not thinking about it, it's not going to come. So you have to be uh, always thinking about it. It's a, it's a hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's, you know, people say, well, you know, I have a family of all these commitments and so on. Uh, unfortunately, science is a hundred percent. You really, you know, I, I think about it all the time. <laughs> Middle of the night, I'm thinking about it experiments and i dream about experiments so it's very 
weird. <laughs> and um, I, do you, do you have a family yourself? No, well, yeah. And what, what 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 part of your career did you did you have children? Uh, uh I think I mean, well, she's. Uh, I was in the late thirties, so, so sort of late-ish. Uh, not not way up, not early, not way early. Uh, and I think, uh, and you know, and, and my daughter, uh, she was thinking about going into science, and, but then she, she also majored in the arts, and now she's in arts, <laughs> and she's completely committed to art. And you know, and art, I think, is even harder than science because you know it's a. Uh, in, at least in you know in, in science, uh, the criteria for what's good, what works, what is you know mm-hmm. has to be reproducible and so so forth. Uh, and art doesn't have that. So I think you know establishing what's good art and what's bad art is you know is completely uh, it's almost arbitrary. It's a human whim. <laughs> So, there, there aren't quite there are no boundaries, <laughs> and, uh, so I find it that, that you know art is much tougher than uh, science. If you the objectivity is lost. Mm-hmm. If you hadn't gone into uh, research into into being a scientist, what do you uh, what do you think you would have done instead? Static, I think <laughs> I'd probably be a wrestling coach. <laughs> <laughs> So wow! So you uh wow! So you were good at wrestling even as a kid. Yeah, no, I was. I was really no. I, I uh, could have gone to any school in the country on a wrestling scholarship. Did you and, uh, did you learn how to wrestle on the streets of Italy? Did you have to fight? And, and no, I did no, but I didn't. But I did know. You know, you do learn things. I mean, I did have to protect my turf. <laughs> that was a given. And and when I f- came first to the United States, my first job was to take care of the upper class. I beat up the upper classmen that were bothering the lower classmen that we <laughs> that I was in. <laughs> okay, so I became the protector of the of our class, mm. <laughs> uh, and I did a good job because you know, they had no idea what <laughs> what they were coming against. So it's a. Um, what do you think, you know, what do you think the risks and benefits of of going into academia and staying in academia today are for a scientist, a young scientist, compared to when you got into things? I think it's much tougher. The demands on the, on a single paper is just astronomical. And I think, you know, they should do away with supplementary data. I mean, it is awful. Because you know that means that the paper never has an end. <laughs> they could always ask for and stuck it in supplementary data. So I think uh, that makes a huge difference. Uh, and and I, you know spending a huge amount of time on a single paper isn't very productive. I mean I think it's not productive for the person. I mean they get you know more data, more data, but they're not learning new things. They're just repeating things uh, and, and regurgitating things that people say. Okay, this should be included or that should include. When it, often no nobody even looks at the supplementary data. <laughs> they just read the main text of the paper and that's it. And here, you know, normally you know I don't know twenty ten. Well, 10 pages to a page, supplementary 30 pages. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's out of scale. Um, and I think it's it's very bad for science and the students, particularly the students, because uh, they should get, you know, 
they should get a variety of experience when they're the graduate students. They should be working one or two papers. Mm -hmm. uh, they should be thinking a lot about stuff. And in that way, start building, you know, what are they going to do next? And they don't have time to do that. And then by the time they finish, you know, a postdoc often is doing the same stuff they were doing as a graduate student. And that's, that's awful. You know, I urge all of my student, graduate students to do, go to a postdoc completely different field. You know, see what they are doing, see what the tools they're utilizing, and then at the end, you can choose whatever you want. But broaden your experience, because I think, you know, the broader your experience, the more open your mind is to new things. And, uh, and, uh, and then we're quenching that. We're making and forcing and forcing them just to concentrate on one problem. What's What's your opinion on the way that the peer review process for publishing papers in biology works today. I think it's the only system that I can think of that works. Uh, so it ha you know it has to be. I mean anything else. And you know if it was an executive committee, uh, I think it would be much worse. So I think it it has to be a, a peer review. I think it is abused. I think sometimes you know people have self interest and and will voice it. And, and that's a travesty. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's still, you know, it's, it's still by far the best system we have. And even, you know, our own system, I think, again, is superior simply because it's not a pyramid. I mean, there isn't one guy at the top controlling the funds for everything below. Uh, you know, each individual has a capability of submitting a grant and getting the money and doing what they want. And that's almost unique to the United States. I mean, it's, it's pathetic. It's true, but it's, uh, you know, all the other countries have much more uh, permit structure. Uh, so, you know, so you know, I complain, but but it's still about far the best. <laughs> so, you know, so you can't complain too loud, uh, uh, and but you can try to improve it. And I think right now we need to, to get uh, you know broader in in acceptance of uh, uh, you know risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we have to make risk of a part of our uh, journey and simply accept it. And then, and then sometimes you're not going to get returns. And, and that should be part of the money. Uh, you know, they, they know that they're going to waste some of the money, but I think they'll gain much, much more than what they lose. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think because right now we're just, uh, it's very, I mean, I literally, that's the, you know, Every time I submit, you know, they always say, oh, the investigators, blah, 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 blah. And then, then they give you no money. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, it's, and it's catch 22. They want you to do the stuff before you do the experiment that you're trying to get the money for. <laughs> so, so without any money, you're not going to do those experiments. But, uh, you know, but it, it happens every time. I kind of it daily. I mean, it's, it's really awful. And I think they should give a little bit of leeway. You know, the best predictor of, of the future, the only predictor of the future, is the past. There's, there's nothing else. Uh, and so I think you should give much more credence to that than they currently do. And if you, if you want, if, they, if the goal is to be, get product productivity. And, and then I think their goal should be to be productivity as well as being really going for the un un unexpected, because that's where new jobs really make a difference. And, uh, what do you think about 
the the part of peer review where what, what do you think about the fact that you know the reviewers always know the identity of the people submitting the paper yep. but the reviewers are anonymous anonymous right i don't mind that i mean i think i think people will uh if it wasn't uh you know if they knew they'd be much more guarded as to uh what they say i mean i think you know you should learn from the review process you know if i get i love you know critique i love critique i mean if somebody if i give somebody a paper and they say it's terrific there's nothing you haven't learned anything, okay. But if they say, you know, you know, this is really foggy, uh, and you know, red, <laughs> really rip it apart, then then you have something to go on and, and to change it and make a difference. So you know, we we should always want criticism. I mean, criticism is vital to science, but on the other hand, it, it uh, and I don't mind not knowing who it is, uh, if, if but I, I want it to be you know to be good. And I want them to be, uh, and I want them to be critical. Uh, they see something I don't see. Wow, it's fantastic. What are you, um, what are you most excited about in your science? In you know, the, the, that's going to happen in the next few years. Are you excited that you might be able to make some major breakthroughs when it comes to understanding the yeah. neurobiology of OCD and anxiety? Yeah. And, and if so, yeah. like, where do you think you'll be in terms of those discoveries two, three, four years from now? I mean, I'm hoping that three or four, you know, that I'll have the whole neural circuit, <laughs> from microglia, who are they talking to, starting the process, all the way to the end, the behavior. And, and the cute thing we've just done now is we can induce the behavior and now see microglia reacting. Okay, So we can see both ends of the spectrum. We can, see, we can tweak microglia, and that gives rise to behavior. We can tweak behavior and see microglia reacting. And now we have to fill in all the steps in between. Uh, and now, you know, and I, you know, I hope to do that right away. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm setting up to be able to do that. Uh, and and that's because I think, you know, we don't have, uh, particularly with behavior, we have no knowledge of that. I mean, it is zero. Uh, you know, so, and uh, you know, and the other aspect of it is that depending on where I'm in the brain, the output's different. You know, but do it here, we get grooming. We do it there, we get anxiety. We do it uh, place C, we can get both. Okay. So which, we have, which parts of the brain are you talking about? Uh, we're going. Uh, uh, we're going into prefrontal cortex. We're going into uh, DMS, and, <clears throat> and then we're going into um, the uh, um, uh, <laughs> amygdala. Okay, so all all, all different uh, cultural places. Uh, in the brain, and so then, so then you'll have to develop the circuitry at each of those places, and, and even you know which neurons are the first responders. Are they different in a different region because the outputs are different, and so on, or is it uh, the signals are different? Whatever you know, so because we have multiple channels, we will be able to get all of that. All of that information will come out, uh, and, uh, and 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 all the tools to do it are now. I mean, Five years from now, we couldn't even think about these experiments. Now, now all of a sudden, they're there, <laughs> and we can do it. Uh, so I think it's a, it's an amazing time, and I think we'll have, you know, and and the other thing we found, I don't I don't know if I mentioned it, that the, the two populations of cells, there's two populations of microglia, they they do opposite things. Uh, so you know, so that's you know, why is that? What makes one be Function as accelerator, whereas the other functions the brake at the molecular level. We'll be able to define that. 
Is that still hope to know that? Is that is that still a mystery? Uh, the two populations of microglia. One, you know, there's this functional difference in terms of yeah. the output you see at the level of behavior. Yeah. Do you yeah. understand anything yet in terms of markers that differentiate them, or you know, aspects of? We only, we only have marker, uh, specific marker for one of the populations. So that's been, and I'd like to have but the gene that's responsible for the other population. We don't know. Uh, and and we'd, lo- we'd love to have that because I hopefully, I mean, the other hoker is always, you know, th- uh, nature doesn't use a gene just for one thing. <laughs> it uses for lots of different things. So there may be pleiotropy. So it may not, there may not exist a unique gene in the other population, for example, that specifies that population. Uh, that, that gene may be doing other things in other cells. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> Uh, and so we were sort of lucky that ours was specific and gives us a market because there's no way uh, right now we have sort of a market on it. And because we have the only marker that you can use <laughs> to, to, to look at that population. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but we, you know, we, we send it to Jack so you know, other people can get it if they want it. Um, but, um, but I think, uh, you know, there is so much to be done with it. That's going to be really informative, uh, and 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 what it's you know, what I'm you know what's going to get me excited is when I'll get a surprise that says you know uh, this is how it works, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sure it's going to be a surprise in a sense because nobody knows how it works, but it may be a real surprise in the sense that you know, a mechanism is used that nobody ever anticipated would be used for that purpose. So. I mean, is that you know, is that your favorite part of of the scientific process when when there's just yeah. something totally surprising that comes yeah, out? Yeah, yeah. That, that's always that's that's real kick because you know you you know you know the one I, I didn't know, but I you know I thought I knew that nature was utilizing homologous recombination for something useful, but then all of a sudden when you see that it actually does. That wow, <laughs> and uh, so there's a big difference between thinking and knowing that it's that's the way it goes. Uh, and, uh, but you know, then one spurs you on, the other then gives you uh, important information to keep going. <laughs> and are you um, are you still t- do you still take graduate students in your lab, or is it all uh-huh, those guys? Yeah, no, no, I think that's not busily hustling. <laughs> Nowadays, uh, you, uh, I'll tell you a story. I went to Jam and uh, when I was uh, still an undergraduate, I asked them, you know, if you were in my shoes, where would you go? At that time, there were only about three choices <laughs> MIT, Caltech, uh, Harvard. <laughs> He looked at me and he said, you'd be fucking crazy go anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. That was persuasive. <laughs> and what's, uh, what's the, how, how do you, how do you uh, mentor your PhD students as opposed to your postdocs? What's, what's your, how's your approach different for the two groups? I, you know, the, the real risky stuff, well, the most risky stuff I do myself. The next uh, lower level of risk I give to graduate students and um, postdocs. As soon as they come in, they're still they're thinking about jobs, <laughs> <laughs> so they don't want risk. 
so there, there is that gradation. Uh, uh, you make it, so you do make those choices. And I think, uh, I mean, I think the my, the rules are different in the sense that in a postdoc, what you're preparing them to is to run a lab. Uh, you know, that's it. And you want them in, you know, and I know when they're ready, for example, is when they really start confronting me <laughs> and arguing with me. And that's good. That's a healthy sign. And I want them to do that. Uh, <clears throat> and I welcome it. Um, but that, that, that's how you decide, you know, where, where are they? At what level of, of development are they? And are they ready? Uh, and I think science is harder now. And so they have to be tough. <laughs> So I think uh, you have to build that toughness in the field, and, uh, and 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 you know get them over the humps. I mean, most of the time in science, you do stuff and it doesn't work, or you think it doesn't work. Actually, it's it's actually I learn more from the failures than I do from the experiments that work. But uh, and and they should. I mean, they should set it up to be uh, not only know that it failed, but know have enough controls to know why it failed and then be able to change it to, to make it work. So I think, you know, it's those subtle kind of things that they have to really on a daily basis be able to do uh, to be able to carry on and know that they can get, no, no matter what they, and particularly, you know, the one criteria I still use is say, can nature do this? And if nature can do it, I know it can be done. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge, huge thing. Because, uh, uh, you know, with with gene targeting at the beginning, we didn't even know whether we were, all, we were going in the right direction. <laughs> you know, and you may be following this lead, and that may be a completely misleading uh, direction to go. So you have to, you don't have a, a, a rope set up to say, you, you know, you're proceeding in the right night and know that if this experiment works, what the next experiment works. You know, and this, initially it's random. <laughs> so, and you have to, uh, look for signals, and then if you find a signal, then it's, can we make it better? Can we make it bigger? Make the noise smaller, in essence. Uh, so I think uh, it's, uh, so those are the things you have to teach and, and uh, incorporate it because it's going to be a tough road for them. <laughs> it's not going to be easy. Uh, and uh, and uh, But I think it's, it's just as exciting because there's so much to learn. I mean, we're still naive. <laughs> we're really naive particularly in terms of you know, how this thing is working. I mean, all we know is it's a really good machine. <laughs> in terms of, you know, other than the the intellectual side of things, you know, being able to think about problems and being able, and also just the experiments themselves, being able to do experiments, other than those things, which are very important, mm-hmm. what are some of the most important skills that a scientist needs to be able to develop to, to actually run a lab? Presentation. Uh, and then uh, writing, and then finally working with people, I mean, because it's a people enterprise. I think, you know, and none of those do we get a really good training in. I mean, you all assume that you just somehow pick it up by osmosis. But, uh, you know, uh, and, and all of those are really important. I, mean, I think if you can't communicate your science, you're lost. You know, you're completely uh, so you have to learn how to give talks and, and be comfortable with it and enjoy it and anticipate what questions you're going to get rather than just waiting 
and never be surprised. Okay, I always tell this my own students: you know more about this field than anybody else in the audience. Okay, relax, uh, and, uh, and 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 welcome. You know, particularly a puzzling question. Um, well, Mario, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. Is there okay. anything? Are there any final thoughts you want to leave people with related to to your career and and your story, or anything that we talked about today? I think, you know, I mean, one is that science is, sometimes people, you know, degrade essentially science in the public. And I think, uh, you know, science has created a lot of problems, but we're also the solution. Global warming is going to be solved by scientists, period. <laughs> I mean, it's not, they're going to do, they're going to develop this tools be able to do something about it. I mean, obviously, the money has to come. It's going to be huge and it comes from elsewhere. But, it, uh, but you know, our dependency on science is even greater now than it ever was. Uh, so I think uh, people have to take science seriously, welcome it, and encourage it. Because without it, we're just going to go down the tube. And, and you know, we're getting close. <laughs> one, th- you know, one part of uh, the aspect of humans is they always have to go to the brink before they get even interested. <laughs> you know, just almost falling off the cliff. Uh, and uh, But, uh, you know, we will science, and we'll need even much more science than is currently being put into the pipeline. Uh, so I think, you know, I think anything that encourages science is a good thing. I mean, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't believe there's anything bad comes out of science. I think science can be misused, you know, but that's a very different thing from the science being bad. I mean, we should be able to go out against, find anything. It doesn't matter what the information isn't the problem. <laughs> it's utilization of that information. So I think it's, and that's a very different enterprise. So we should encourage all science to see what it tells us and then, uh, and then uh, go with it. Uh, and, uh, but rather than be timid. And now our pace is just too slow. And I think we need to really just spark up the activity as opposed to, uh, you know, giving up and uh, desperation. Uh, you know, but there's a saying, I think, you know, that when things get tough, you have to work harder. <laughs> it's, it's not a time to sit back. It's a time to actually put in even more effort. Uh, so I think that, to me, is really important. Uh, and so, and and that requires, you know, it's it is it, it's an economic thing. You have to decide what your priorities are, and then go for it. But uh, so, uh, but science will be the salvation. So that has to be happen. It won't happen without it. Uh, and that's true whether we're talking about medicine or not medicine. And global warming is a huge problem. I mean, it's really big. And I think uh, people are just beginning to even think about it rather than uh, embracing it and, and saying this is what they should be doing and, and what the resources are. And what, if what we spend now is trivial to what we're going to spend in the future. I mean, the longer we sit back, the more expensive it is and fast. I mean, it's not going to, it's not going to be uh, 10 years from now. It's going to be tomorrow. <laughs> so, so I think the, there's urgency and there's, uh, and there's need. And uh, 
and I certainly, you know, I don't want to scare away people from science. Uh, that, that's, uh, I mean, I think it is tougher, but I think it's, but it's also, you know, you can do so much more. So I think one thing that uh, I always do is I'm trying to, you know, even though they're going to have a tough time, I encourage students to go into science rather than saying, you know, this is a bad time. Uh, weather it, you know, go into it, make a difference. So I think it's, uh, I think we have to really and we encourage students. And I think that's an important message. All right. And, well, it's, and, it's, and it's fun. <laughs> There's nothing like it. You know, people pay us to play. <laughs> How can you beat that? <laughs> so I think it's a, so I think it's, it is important. All right. Well, Dr. Mario Capecchi, uh, thank you again for your time. This was really this was, fun. Thank you. Thank you. And I, lo I look forward to uh, seeing what uh, discoveries come out next. Terrific. I'm hoping a lot. <laughs> no, I'm very excited. Okay. Ciao. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.